One little act of kindness can go a long, long way. Two little acts of kindness can brighten anyone's Hi, and welcome back to Tell Me What Happened, the podcast that features folks from all walks of life telling us childhood stories. I'm your host, Jay Rehack, and like you, I've had my share of childhood experiences. Some of them great, some of them not so great. But I like to think that everything that happened to me as a child has helped me to become who I am today. Tell Me What Happened is sponsored by Sidelining Publishing, publishers of quality books, including Susan Salador's classic, One Little Act of Kindness, available on Amazon.com or wherever quality books are sold. Tell Me What Happened is also sponsored by LaughSaver.com. Visit LaughSaver.com and record your laughter. We'll keep it for you, now and forever. It's free, and your children and your grandchildren will appreciate it. That's LaughSaver.com. Go there today and record your laughter. All right. I'd like to welcome my good friend Michelle Gunderson. Michelle, I've known her for a thousand years. She is an early childhood educator, recently retired. She's also a union activist. She's one of the heroes, I would say, of my uh, 35-year teaching experience where I looked to her and was always impressed. Anyway, welcome to the show, Michelle Gunderson. Thank you, Jay. And thank you for this show. You and I had a chance to talk earlier about how important it is to tell stories from early childhood. And I wanted to quote a woman who's considered the expert of play, Jill Murphy. And her book on play is read by early childhood educators around the country. And she talks about childhood amnesia and how adults forget what it was like to be a child. And that childhood amnesia is a huge part of why we have such bad educational policy or why sometimes teachers don't relate well to the children they're teaching. So when you started this podcast, I thought of her immediately and also how important it is for adults who work with children or form policy or have children or grandchildren, that really includes all of us, to start thinking about what it was like to be a child so that we have empathy, but also that we make the right decisions when dealing with children or forming policy about children. So let's like highlight that right now, that idea of childhood amnesia. I'm going to use that, by the way. I'm going to use that in my podcast in the future. I think that is excellent. Thank you so much for that. Absolutely. And so a lot of times when I was teaching, 34 years of teaching, whenever I would cringe at what another teacher said or maybe how an administrator approached a child, I would think that person forgets what it was like to be a child. Or maybe that person forgets what it was like to be the last one chosen in basketball or the stories that create us and make us human, the good ones, as you said, and and the tough ones too. So I'm gonna tell my story, it's actually not very long, but it's a beautiful childhood memory that was interrupted. So some people have stories for good and some people have stories that are difficult to listen to about childhood. Mine is actually a really pleasant memory. My sister and I are only 18 months apart and we're very, very close to one another. Then when we were five and three, we lived in a tri-level home built in the 1960s. And at the top of the stairs was this closet that was wide and deep and ran, ran the whole length of the stairwell. And it was the perfect play space for children because it was enclosed. 
and it felt safe. And we would decide every other day or so what it was going to be. Was it going to be a jungle? Was it going to be a palace? Was it going to be a kitchen? And we would spend a long time deciding what the play was going to be. And then we would act out the story and the play was deep. One of the things that we have to understand about childhood is children need deep play, not superficial play or not play that is gamified, but true, deep, child-initiated, child-directed play. And day after day, we would dress up and play and decide who we were going to be. And it felt magical. And I still remember the magic of that play. When, we were, when I was six, we had to leave that home to move closer to my father's work. And our new house never felt the same. It was never a good place to play. My mom loved her house very tidy, very orderly. And the place she chose for us to play was downstairs. And it was far away from everybody else. And it wasn't enclosed or safe or cozy. So in my childhood, I've always had this grieving of that sense of place to the point where during the pandemic, I started having dreams about it. And I think all of us started having really intense dreams during the first months of the pandemic. And I asked my husband to drive me past my childhood home to kind of put the dreams to rest. I had this intense need to see it again. It had just been sold so I could see it on Redfin and could see all the rooms and what it looked like. And it actually was very therapeutic to have that remembrance of that time. So I wanted to tell this story instructively as a person who works with young children, because there's two things here that we, or maybe even more, that we need to think about. One is remembering the good things about childhood, not just the ones that created our hardships or formed us in ways that were traumatic even and that we have to analyze how important play is in a child's life and that play interrupted can be uh, difficult for children. The other part of this story that helps me with childhood amnesia and working with children and especially a Chicago public school early childhood teacher is understanding family mobility and understanding how difficult it is for a child to move. And especially since I taught first grade for the most of my career, a move for a six-year-old is really a difficult experience. And as Chicago teachers, I always had two or three extra spaces in my room for new students. Uh, several times during my career, the space was there for a homeless student or a child who experienced housing insecurity, as we say now. And I would always want to make sure there was a welcoming place at any moment in time in my classroom, because we just never know who's going to show up on our doorstep. And nothing is more disconcerting to a classroom or a child you're trying to greet than to scramble for something. And those of us who have taught in Chicago understand what it feels like. A child and a parent 
usually show up midday because we have to understand how the shelter system in Chicago works. You have to pack up your belongings. You have to go get your breakfast. You usually have to stand in line for things. So many times when a child who was experiencing house insecurity, housing insecurity would come to my door, it wouldn't be the first thing in the morning. There would not be a chance for me to get things together or to organize myself. And so I want us to all remember that even a child like me who had two working parents and a loving family and food and a new house to go to, I experience incredible loss in moving. So let's take that understanding and really open our hearts up to children who experience housing insecurity, but also the mobility rate in Chicago because of poverty. Our children many times go from place to place or relative to relative. And we have to understand how that feels for them. And so that is the bulk of, of what I wanted to say about that. But also then let's go to the, the positive feelings about childhood in play. When we talk about sense of space, and what it means to a child. There's a really wonderful woman named Debbie Miller, and she wrote this book called Growing Readers. And she talked about sense of space for a reader all the time. And the very first lesson that she says you should have with six-year-olds is draw your place you love to read. So let's unpack that and how important it is, that sense of place. First of all, you're making an assumption that you love to read and that reading is something to love. The next thing you do is that you help children understand that sense of place and habit and love and comfort. When you do this exercise with six-year-olds, you get a lot of information really fast. You find out who doesn't love to read, who might need support and help in finding a calmness in order to read. Think about how complicated it is to learn to read and how much you have to feel good about yourself, have confidence in your safety, not have your mind preoccupied with other things. So I dearly adore this educator, Debbie Miller, for understanding that we need to build inside our classroom as well, places where children love to read. And it's usually not a desk and a chair. <laughs> right? Guess where I loved to read as a child? In that closet with a bunch of pillows and a lamp and a flashlight. Oh my gosh, how many kids absolutely love to read under the covers with a flashlight? That sense of having your, your secret place your, so that you can develop your inner self and your inner life. And so think as if you are an educator reading this or a parent or a grandparent, think about establishing that beautiful, safe place for a child to read or learn. That, and it's usually not the desk you set up in the corner of the room. It's, it's usually the comfortable place. When we think about childhood amnesia, my first grade classroom, we all sat in desks in a row. I went to first grade in 1965 and we had hardback chairs desks in a row did not talk all day long and we were seated alphabetically because it was easier to pass the papers in that way for the teacher to grade and everything was pencil and paper oriented and done to self how lucky am i that my parents were educators and i had a house full of books 
and could read before I went to school because learning to read like that is what some people call readicide, killing reading. And um, making reading something that is done in isolation, out of context, without the help of others. And we know from Vygotsky that we all need socialization and, and the social venue in order to learn. So safe, cozy space does not need to be expensive and it doesn't need to be extensive. How many times did you have a large box and that's where your child wanted to play? Right. I'm <laughs> not something that we have to have as a point of privilege and children will find these places themselves, but honor them. Don't have your child pick it up every night. Don't make it someplace that you consider unattractive. Make sure it's a space that you honor and hold steadfast for the child. I also wanted to talk about helping children tell their own stories just like this and that that's your way of knowing more about children and understanding them. A child the other day, I was substitute teaching. I'm so lucky to be substitute teaching in the Chicago schools right now because it helps me understand what everybody is still going through and that it is even more difficult than when we left off school in spring of 2021 because now we have more students in front of us. And I didn't think it was going to be fair for me to continue as a union leader or a voice for early childhood teachers, unless I kept myself inside the classroom from time to time. And so I was substitute teaching in a second grade classroom and a little girl had her mask on and she goes, oh no, my tooth fell out and it's in my mask. And then later oh, on- Poor kid. I'm poor kid, right? And then later on that day, we're doing journal writing, she says, I don't have anything to write about. And I said, darling, you have got to be kidding. <laughs> We're in the middle of probably the most memorable events of your life. And you have a tooth fall out in your mask. You've got plenty to write about. So I love that you're doing this, Jay. I love that we're diving in to what it feels like to have childhood experiences. I, I want people to remember, what did it feel like to learn to read? I give a lot of seminars to teachers on teaching children to read naturalistically and through guided reading. And when I begin every one of my seminars, I say, I want to hear how you learn to read. Hmm. And as we go around the room and talk about how we learn to read, we can attach that to all of the different philosophies of reading. And there's not a one person that says, I learned how to read through a workbook. And so let's remember about space and time and what children need. The, the last thing I wanted to delve into about how what adults need to remember about childhood and maybe take from my experience of play being so important is understanding not to interrupt play and how disarming it is to a child, to especially very small children, to interrupt their play. It has a sense of breaking into their world. It's obstructive and it's non-productive. And so there's some things that I see in classrooms happening that interrupt play. One of them is when we have early childhood teachers that experience play or in teaching play through having centers. And I have air quotes on that centers. Not a good idea because if you, that's not authentic play. It's not child-directed, child-chosen. And if you're ringing a little bell and having kids rotate through the centers, you've just created worksheet type atmosphere 
by a different name. And there is nothing more disconcerting to a child, especially a child who needs play for their emotional release, to be interrupted by an adult and told you have to do something next. In fact, whenever I've done observations of student teachers, that's when children tantrum because their play has been interrupted and they don't, they don't want to move to the Play-Doh table. They didn't choose the Play-Doh table. They don't like the Play-Doh table. And I was having a great time with the cars. I'm going to show you how displeased I am with you. I'm on the floor. So one of the things that I've developed in my practice is giving children warnings. And now, oh God, warning actually sounds punitive. What would be a better way of saying it? I, I give them a heads up. I'll say, in five minutes, we have to pick up. And this is true. I mean, you do have to go to lunch at some time. You can't let play go on forever when you have 30 children in front of you. But what I'll do is be instructive. You'll need to finish your story that you've got going, or you'll need to get together as a group, decide what it's going to feel like tomorrow. And children can be taught how to plan for their play so that it doesn't feel so disruptive when they do have to pick up. And I will tell you, I had so few discipline issues in my classroom, even with children with uh, their own personal struggles by understanding not to interrupt them when they were doing something important and to give them the time they needed to finish things. Having a space in my classroom where you put unfinished projects. Now we did have to have Lego take apart day because I mean, we get to the point there weren't any Legos left, but guess what? I would give them like a two day warning and put it up on a calendar on Friday. It's Lego take apart day. And how does that look? We take apart the Legos. We don't have a tantrum. We understand that that's the way we have to be in a sharing community. Those, those kind of interactions between adult and child so that it works out well. So I, the other thing um, that I wanted to talk about this is that we have to take all of these things into consideration and understand play deeply, but also understand what is not play so that it can't be co-opted. We have to know that arranging things for children that do that, that are done in playfulness, absolutely fine, but it's not play. And the worst is putting a child on a computer that the learning has been gamified like a video game and calling that play that is not play and actually we have a lot of evidence about brain growth and children with immediate feedback and impulse control how detrimental gamified learning is for small children and i think probably we're going to see that true in the middle grades as well so i want us to understand the importance of play, what it is, what it isn't, to shelter it, to honor it, and to help children feel comfortable and supported in their worlds through how the adults understand play. And if, if I can leave everybody and start engaging with Jay on his reactions to what I've had to say, I think the most one of the most horrible things that has happened in education is that we have what I call play for some. What I mean about that is a kid in Winneka gets to play in kindergarten. There are children in Chicago who their kindergarten is nothing but sit at your table and do worksheets or sit in isolation and accomplish tasks, especially if those tasks are being attached to very 
small incremental standards instead of understanding the whole image of a child and the whole needs of a child. So you know, I kid with my friends that on my tombstone I want engraved, she let them play. And let's try to build more play advocates and more people who understand childhood amnesia and understand children through understanding their own childhood. So that's my story, Jay. Beautiful. You know, I tell my wife because she's an early ch childhood musician and educator. And I always say the people who should get paid the most in society are early childhood educators because they can do the most damage. So if you get the wrong ones, it's no good, you know. And I, I wish I'd have been in your classroom. I had a flood of memories come up when you were talking because when I was a little boy, I was so afraid before I got to kindergarten that I was going to fail. Because I go, I can't, <laughs> I can't read. <laughs> what am I going to do if I don't learn? And uh, my kindergarten teacher was good. My mother was good. And she said, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And the other memory I think of from what you were talking about, there's, there's so many things you articulated. But I had a very steady childhood. But one of the most traumatic things that happened to me when I was a boy was that my best friend moved when I was five. And it really threw me off. And then the last thing that really is evocative for me is, is that in my life right now, and ever since I was a little boy, but my family knows this, I'm 65 years old, that there are days when I go underneath the covers of my own bed and I tell my children and my wife, don't bother me, I'm in my house. And what I do is I sit there and I read or I think about short stories that I want to write or have read or whatever else. And, I, and, and it, it sounds sort of Weird as a 65-year-old to confess it, but it's just true. I'd say, I'm in my house, and my children and my wife know, leave him alone. He's in his own world. He's thinking about something that he needs um, needs a little time on. Well, I, so that's, that's the point, isn't it? Children yeah. need, we all need our own worlds. Well, we that's what need. I'm thinking. I'm, I mourn for those little kids. And unfortunately, that's what, it, what comes out of the, what you're telling me is that I think about the kids that don't get that chance, you know, to uh, to have their space or to be allowed to just play around. The fact that you're able to have a little cupboard and then have that sort of taken from you by the move, which was understandable, of course, it is what it is. But for you to understand that later, so that childhood amnesia, I, I as I listen to you, I just keep thinking I should... <laughs> read a little more Deborah Miller, and I should also just sort of incorporate this notion of childhood amnesia because it is really important. I know that not just for educators, but for parents and everybody. You know, my wife's got a song where she says, all of us were babies once. Oh, exactly. Like it, it, when we think about who these stories impact, it, it impacts those of us who have no children in our lives who are waiting in line at the jewel tolerating the kid who's having the tantrum because they've just had enough and they want that candy bar and they put them right there at the height of the kid's <laughs> eyes on purpose. Right? You know, like so cruel, yeah. Remember, remembering in our, our daily encounters what it was like to be a child. You know, a couple of things before we go that, that you said that are really important that I'm hoping some other people who come on your podcast can talk about friendships, how important childhood friendships are. And one of the things we try to do when we're constructing classrooms at our school is make sure every single child has at least two friends in each new configuration of a classroom, because it can be very difficult for the first six, eight weeks of school for a second grader who's seven to have an open mind to reading and an open heart for what's new 
if they're looking around and there are no friends there. And I, I work on that, trying to help friendships and establish friendships as the patient and careful adult looking in without being too intrusive. There are ways to do it. Another thing that, that you brought up is, you know, that educators can do great harm. I'm not so sure it's as true as that the policymakers can do the great harm. We have bosses who tell us what to do during our day. And if the boss did not set up the school correctly or didn't set the tone, it's an uphill battle for most educators. I am very lucky that at my school, it's a strongly structured school with strong unionists where we believe we're a faculty, not a staff. And to me, what that means is our word goes as the experts. When Rahm Emanuel increased the day to seven hours and we had an extra day for first, an extra hour for first graders, we were being told what it could be. And the first grade team said, it's going to be an hour of self-selected play. And we made our argument for it. We made our argument with the LSE, with the parents and with the principal. And we have had an hour of self-selected play for first graders for more than nine years now. And it would not have been possible if we hadn't been firm in our education ourselves as professionals and had solidarity in our understanding of what early childhood is. So yeah, we, we've got to make sure that people remember their childhoods, understand them, unpack them. And it's part of making this world a better place for children and adults alike. Well, thank you, Michelle. That was fantastic. I, you know, I felt like I'm in a seminar. You gotta, you gotta teach this. I don't know if you teach it at, at, at uh, a level, but every chance I get, I teach it and write it. That's and, so great. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You got a book about it. We need you to write a book about it too. Not yet. Okay. Maybe. Yep. There's a well, lot of good out there. Well, thank you, Michelle. That was fantastic. Very evocative, emotional, and also educational for me. So, thank you for that. So I'd like to thank my friend Michelle Gunderson for coming on the show. I'd also like to thank our sponsors, Sidelining Publishing, publishers of quality books, and LaughSaver.com. Visit LaughSaver.com and record your laughter. It's free and we'll keep it for you. I'm going to end this show a little differently this week. I'm going to end it with Susan Salador's Fine Finkelstein in honor of my friend Michelle who sort of helped me understand a little bit more the importance of not having childhood amnesia. So until next time, this is Jay Rehack asking you all to stay safe out there and try not to hurt anybody. My mother named me for the summer day that I was born. My father gave me his last name on that same August morn. All the men in my family are Finkelstein by name And I'm fine, Finkelstein, and I'm fine about my name I know that it sounds funny, but I like it just the same We have lots of things that make us different from each other But all of us were babies once And that makes us like each other friend is from Bosnia and his folks call him John. Our mailman's from South Africa and he goes by Nelson. My neighbor is from Vietnam and he is known as Tuan. And the
crossing guards from Mexico, and his first name is Juan. And I'm fine, Finkelstein, and I'm fine about my name. I know that it sounds funny, but I like it just the same. We have lots of things that make us different from each other, but all of us were babies once, and that makes us like each other. like to pray but others go to churches on Christian holidays and others pray in mosques or temples or under golden domes and there are those whose holy place is nowhere else but home and I'm fine Finkelstein and I'm fine about my name I know that it sounds funny but I like it just the same we have lots of things that make us different from each other but all of us were babies once, and that makes us like each other. I have a friend who said that he is openly adopted. And when I asked, what do you mean? He said he's happily co-opted. Turns out my friend is luckier than others I have known. He's got two moms and will have two moms even after he is grown. That makes us like each other. I'm fine, Finkelstein, and I'm fine about my name. I know that it sounds funny, but I like it just the same. We have lots of things that make us different from each other. But all of us were babies once, and that makes us like each other. But all of us were babies once, and that makes us like each other. Like each other.